Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Eva Glishich, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Sandra Frimel about her book, Art Judgments, Art on Trial in Russia after Perestroika. Sandra Frimel is an art historian and research coordinator at the Center of Arts and Cultural Theory at the University of Zurich. She's also a researcher at the Department of Slavic Studies. Her work focuses on Russian art from 19th century through to today, um, with a particular focus on this intersection between art and law. Now, Sandra, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, Sandra, I wonder if we could begin um, by telling us a bit about yourself. Telling a bit about myself, uh, I think you um, basically mentioned the most important occupations in my life at the moment. Uh, Maybe I can add that I'm also a member of the Arts Commission of the Council of the City of um, Zurich. And that's a part of my work, uh, which differs a little from research because it's very practical work and we are um, distributing uh, funding amongst the local artists and off spaces. And this is, it's not a job, um, but it's something I very much like to do um, because it gives me an insight into the contemporary art scene and also in the needs, uh, the financial and the economic and the practical needs of, of artists and those who make, exhibit and, and distribute art. And it's something I very much like to do. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, I presume that position gives you a pretty good insight into the economics of, of the art scene and art world. <laughs> yeah, very much. I'm also in a very special power situation, <laughs> um, but um, this uh, position demands yeah a lot of responsibility. So I have a lot of responsibility and I um, like that, actually. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, uh, today we'll talk about your book, Our Judgments, um, which is yeah, qu- quite a unique insight into the series of court cases against contemporary artists and uh, curators in, in Russia. Um, I'm interested if you could tell us how you became kind of focused on and how this became focus of your research. Yeah, that act- that's actually a very good question. Um, I think I have always been very interested in the social dimension of art that is Um, in how a society reacts to art and how a society feels inspired by art or feels offended by art and what debates are triggered by art in society. And by looking at the developments in the Russian art scene since Perestroika, it was possible to observe and analyze many processes that seemed to have already been completed in the context of so-called Western art, under the conditions of turbo capitalism, as it's called in Russia, and in a situation of ideological upheaval. And that fascinated me 
a lot. And to be honest, I wanted to be part of it. But um, how I actually came to my concrete topic was a great coincidence, I have to say. In 2002 and 2003, I lived in Moscow for a while, for about half a year, and I went to the vernissage of the exhibition Caution Religion at the Sakharov Center in deep winter, somewhere in January or February. And I was not very enthusiastic about the exhibition itself. It was very disparate and it was not focused enough. Um, in my eyes, there was just a random mixture of work and the exhibition did not have a convinc convincing thematic focus. And I had almost forgotten that I had seen it at all. But a few days later, everyone was suddenly talking about the exhibition having been vandalized by Orthodox believers who felt that their religious feelings had been hurt by the artworks. And when this case finally ended up in court, I was very interested in how Russian society was trying to negotiate not only the relationship between art and religion or between art and religious feelings, but also the relationship between art and society in general. I think I was interested in the negotiation of new guidelines for both the production and reception of art, especially after the reference system of socialist realism, which had previously provided very clear guidelines, as we all know, had broken down. Yeah, that, that's an um, interesting moment moment in, in time in, in uh, Soviet history. Um, and um, if we could kind of start at the beginning, I guess your book opens with a consideration of, of Russian art uh, during the 1990s. Um, and some of really the first criminal proceedings um, against artists in the post-Soviet era. Um, what were some of the main features or characteristics of, of, of these cases? Um, I suppose you mean the two criminal proceedings against Avdi Tehaganyan and Aliyah Mavramati in 1990 and 2000, right? Yeah, first of all, um, these two cases um, were actions by individual artists and they are or were or whatever actions that wanted to provoke and that also polarized the art world very strongly. Um, I'm briefly going to mention uh, what the cases or the artworks were about. So in his performance, the young atheist, Tiraganyan had offered the desecration of icons to order and for payment at the Moscow Art Fair, Art Manege, to teach actually young artists the tools of the trade, so to speak, of radical performance artists. So a very provocative work. And therefore he was charged with inciting national, racial and religious hatred and enmity, as it is called in the Criminal Codex of the Russian Federation, <clears throat> and in 2000, similar criminal proceedings with the same charges were instigated against the artist and director Aliyab Mavramati for his performance, Don't Believe Your Eyes, um, in which he was publicly nailed to a wooden cross not far from the Cathedral of Christ the Savior in Moscow. This is, by the way, the same cathedral in which 12 years later Pussy Riot performed. 
their punk prayer. And Don't Believe Your Eyes was conceived actually as part of a film about audience reactions to radical art actions. This is a very interesting moment. But both artists had fled Russia, uh, the one to Bulgaria and the other one to the Czech Republic because they were afraid of a trial and afraid of a conviction. So the trials did not take place. And however... What is important in the context of my book is that in these two cases, the same Orthodox believers and the same extremist Orthodox organizations as in the later trials, uh, which are the focus of my research, had filed lawsuits because they felt that their religious feelings had been hurt by the artistic actions. And the case of Teraganyan is therefore always included in the court cases of the 2000s. So from the transcripts of the hearings, one can really feel how believers who testify in court are not at ease that this artist has so far got off unpunished and how they are attempting desperately to take Teraganyan's case to court within the framework of the trial against caution religion and finally bring it to a conclusion Sorry, coughing. And this already shows how crucial the initiative of Orthodox, I call them grassroots movements, Orthodox grassroots movements, was for the prosecution at the beginning, so at the turn of the millennium. And um, these two proceedings against uh, Teraganyan and Mavramati also mark, in my opinion, a very important social development of the time. So in the 1990s, directly after Perestroika, there were practically no institutions for contemporary art and society basically also lacked interest in contemporary art. So it was a completely different time. But following the change of government in the late 1990s, not to mention Putin's presidentship, um, contemporary art became a status symbol. So uh, foundations for contemporary art have been founded. They opened their own galleries and exhibition spaces, private and also state prizes have been instituted and so on and so forth. So suddenly Russia had a very lively contemporary art scene. But this growing financial participation of the state and of private institutions in the contemporary art scene was also accompanied by an increased ideological interest and a need to control art, especially radical art, um, which Tereanyan and Mavramati did, to control art as it was controlled in the Soviet Union. And since the artist unions after the end of the Soviet Union were no longer able to control art, I believe that the courts took over this function. And this is a crucial point yeah, of my research, of my research in total, not only of this book, but in general. And that, that's a really interesting point, how that those mechanisms um, shift right from those associations to, to the, the court um, space and uh, it, it had this growing um, uh, perception of art that now has like the status symbol also means that art is becoming a, a battlefield in in a, in a way. Um, 
Now, you just mentioned Caution Religion, and indeed the main portion of your study focuses on these two exhibitions, uh, Caution Religion, which took place in 2003, and then Forbidden Art 2006, which uh, took place in 2007, um, and they were both held at the um, Andrei Sakharov Museum and Public Center in Moscow. Um, I'm, I'm curious, why did you choose to focus on art exhibitions as your case studies, um, rather than some of the artistic interventions um, that took place in pub- public spaces? Mm. I have to say that I didn't consciously choose to focus on exhibitions rather than artistic interventions in public space. It wasn't about playing one off against the other. Um, I was interested in a much broader perspective of artistic freedom, uh, as I said already, in the power relation between art and society. And I was interested in the debates that take place about art, especially in a society that until recently was accustomed to the guidelines for art production and also the artistic taste. That's another important moment, the artistic taste of an entire population being determined by the state. So how is it determined in Russia today as to what art should do, can do and may do and where does the boundary or freedom of artistic expression lie and so on. And for me, there was no better context for investigating these questions than the courtroom. Uh, because here norms are established that apply also to all future art and that reflect a society's relationship to art as a whole. And central to my study is not only the question of how art is debated in court by both prosecution and defense, but also the means by which the prosecution seeks to determine a normative concept of art and to establish it permanently in law also for future generations of artists, exhibition makers, and so on. And I was interested in how the art is deemed by society to be socially constitutive, is sought to be brought discursively into being by the staging in court of a concept of what art is supposed to be. I think one has take into account, of course, that Soviet society was highly juridified, um, meaning that various small and large issues were constantly negotiated in court form with prosecutors and defenders. Um, somebody stealing a book, somebody lending a book from a library and not returning it in a proper state. Um, yeah, such things. And uh, these discussions in court form took place everywhere, in factories, in homes, um, or in exhibitions, just everywhere. And what I mean is that holding court outside the courtroom was a very widespread and well-rehearsed Soviet practice. And unlike Teraganyan's or even Mavramati's action and other performances in public space in the 1990s, for which the artists only had to pay a fine, if at all, only the court cases against exhibitions and the organizers provided me with enough material, written material in the form of court opinions, minutes of meetings, and so on, to examine in detail the attempts to establish 
artistic norms in a legally binding way. And one also has to take into consideration that the languages spoken in the realm of contemporary art and in the courtroom are very different. And I also was interested in these differing languages. Yeah, they're certainly two very different spheres, but uh, uh, it's a fascinating moment where they uh, uh, interact in, in this way through the court, court cases. Um, I'm interested uh, to learn more about the trials, but before we uh, move to this, maybe you can just outline a little bit um, the content really of these two exhibitions, Caution Religion and, and Forbidden Art 2006. Uh, what did they showcase? The exhibition Caution Religion showed various works um, about religion, um, not about a specific religion, but just about the topic religion. Could be anything, even atheism, whatever, uh, by various artists, younger artists, older artists, um, very famous artists, not very famous artists, produced from the 70s, so uh, from Soviet times until today, today meaning until 2003. Um, and they were not especially produced uh, for the exhibition, but just collected by the curators. So it was, as I said in the beginning, a very disparate exhibition. Um, and the exhibition Forbidden Art um, showed artworks which were not shown in various exhibitions of the year 2006 because uh, commissions inside museums or in galleries decided that they were offensive for some reason uh, and decided not to display them. Right, so it's a little bit like, like the sal salon of the re rejected, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, a little. Um, but the exhibition also directly reacted to um, the proceedings to the court case of caution religion, because the curator André Irafeev, who was then head of the Department of Contemporary Art in the state, Tretiakov Gallery, wanted to outline this phenomenon of censorship and self-censorship, uh, which spread increasingly in Russian society after the trial of caution religion. And there is an, a very interesting moment one has to imagine the works were not openly on display, but they were hidden behind false walls and there were only small holes in the walls through which one could see the artwork. So it was kind of a peep show. Yeah, right. Um, and it's yeah, fascinating that the way in this, which these two um, exhibitions really talk to each other, um, both in, in concert, but right throughout these trials, as, as you show in your book. Um, can you tell us who are the main actors in these trials, you know, who represented the prosecution, who were the witnesses, and also what kind of evidence was used um, on these occasions? That's a lot of questions <laughs> all at once. Um, there is actually a lot to say about this, but I will try to be, be brief. Um, so the two proceedings uh, were initiated by the public prosecutor's office, but there's a very interesting moment because in the case of caution religion, um, the public prosecutor was ordered by a decision of the state Duma to, to open the case. 
Um, but as I already mentioned, the, the trials were actually guided by Orthodox believers and Orthodox organizations, such as, for example, the Committee for the Moral Rebirth of the Fatherland, the People's Council or the People's Defense, very strange names. And on their websites, these organizations distributed appeals to file lawsuits and also provided template-like sample letters for all those who felt violated by the exhibitions and the artworks. And they should send these letters to the prosecutor's office, public prosecutor's office to demand that the curators be charged. Very unusual. So those people who sent these letters to the prosecutor often later appeared as witnesses in court. There were Dozens, or in the case of um, Forbidden Art 2006, uh, even more than 100, 113, if I remember correctly, of them. And these religious witnesses had coordinated in preparation of the trials so that their statements were as identical as possible in order to name the reasons for their feelings of outrage as uniformly as possible and to establish a language regime, which we also know from uh, the Moscow show trials, but I think we will talk about this later, a language regime that was as discrediting as possible. And the prosecution witnesses, for example, consistently speak in their testimonies of exhibits and exhibition in quotation marks to mark that they are not exhibitions and exhibits at all. And they speak of so-called artists and so-called exhibitions. And before the witnesses appeared in court, they, that's a very strange thing, they openly rehearsed their statements in the corridors of the court building. And often the witnesses actually read their statements off the page in the witness stand. It's all kind of a, it's not a court case, it's a theater, actually. And it is precisely this that is the speaking of the prosecution witnesses about their hurt feelings that is, you were asking about the evidence, that is the evidence that the artworks in the two exhibitions hurt the feelings of the Believers, because see, um, the material evidence can hardly exist where emotions are concerned. And it is interesting that the works of art can even hardly serve as material evidence because many witnesses have not even seen the works but have only heard about them. They have heard from somebody who also might not have seen the artworks, by the way. Um, that these works of art can hurt religious feelings, may hurt religious feelings. And in my book, I call this type of witness, um, I was trying a long time to find uh, a good and sufficient term for these witness. And I came up with the term impact witness because the primary task of these witnesses is to testify of the impact of contemporary art on the viewer. And by the way, the participants in both trial, that is the prosecution, the expert, the prosecution witnesses, the defense lawyers, the defense witnesses, and even the accused <laughs> were basically always 
the same, which is why I often talk about both trials as one unit, because it was a repeating case. And also when, um, when witnesses in courtroom talked about uh, the exhibition Forbidden Art 2006, they always, not, not always, they often also talked about the exhibition Caution Religion. They mixed it all up. They mixed up works they have or have not seen in one or the other exhibition and was all one, one big thing. No, that, that, that's quite uh, interesting. And so there's the connection between these two exhibitions, but also the, the case that you mentioned from, from the 90s, right? So there's that continuity um, in, 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 this, in this process. Um, you, you mentioned the word so-called quite a bit, um, so-called art, right? So-called artists. Um, and there's, a, I guess, a central question during these trials was um, really what, what is art? What is the definition of art? Can do you think? Can we talk about um, a, a legal definition of art that came out of these trials? How do we define art in this context, and and who gets to define it? I guess that's a good question. That's a huge question. Um, where to start? The definition of art. Um, I mean, that, that is almost right an impossible question. But then when you, when you take it to the courtroom, right, then what? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just thinking about where to start mm. because mm. the witnesses of um, the um, accusation often try to define. So both, both parties try to define what is art. So which materials and which subjects... Uh, which topics are considered to be art. But um, the witnesses of the prosecution do it by outlining historical figures. Um, they consider to, to give good examples for what is good art, for what is appropriate art. They are referring to the Russian wanderers of the 19th uh, century, to... Repin, Kramskoy, uh, whoever there is, they are referring to Beuchel, they are referring to Da Vinci and trying to outline very thoroughly uh, which subjects good art has to display and which subjects um, are not allowed to use in the context for contemporary art, for example, relig religious symbols. So they, in their opinion, it's not allowed to use religious symbols in the context of contemporary art because uh, it's a desecration of religious symbols. And the witnesses of the defense are not trying to define art because for them, as for everybody who is um, familiar with the context of contemporary art, contemporary art or art is what an artist or curator uh, considers to be art. Maybe it's the question if it's good art or bad art or if it's interesting art or not, but it's all contemporary art. And these concepts of uh, good art and bad art or what is art differ a lot. But the lawsuits actually did, the lawsuits themselves did not lead to a new definition of art 
in the law. So there's two different layers. There's the discussion in courtroom where the question of what is art and how it can be defined is very crucial, but it didn't lead um, to a definition of art in law, but usually... Uh, even internationally, there is no definition of what is art in the criminal code because the concept of art is too changeable. You find a definition of art usually in the context of customs law. Sometimes uh, it's very funny to read them. For example, in the U.S. customs law, they have pages and pages of topics, of materials which can be used, um, but they are also a little outdated because um, they can't be used in the system of contemporary art, but nevertheless, they, they sometimes are so that works by Bill Viola are not considered to be art because it's just uh, monitors and uh, DVDs, <laughs> which outside of the context of an ex exhibition space do not even look like art. But what is interesting in the context of the trials is that they all have led to changes in terms of sentencing, because as a result of the trial against Forbidden Art 2006, the change in the law raised the maximum penalty for incitement of religious hatred from three to five years imprisonment. And that's a lot. If I remember correctly, that was in 2009, but it was um, already discussed during the trial of uh, caution religion. And in 2013, already after the verdict against Pussy Riot, but again, already planned since the verdict in the case of caution religion, there were, again, very substantial alterations to existing law because previously the, and this is a short quotation, uh, insulting religious feelings of citizens or desecration of articles, marks and emblems relating to world outlook uh, were subject to a fine of just 1,000 rubles. This, I don't know how much it is at the moment, but it's really not a lot. But... Then, so in 2013, it was transferred from the Code of Administrative Offense to the Criminal Code, so that since then and now, so-called public acts clearly disrespectful of society and committed in order to offend the religious feelings of believers are punishable with up to three years imprisonment, so from 1,000 rubles up to three years of imprisonment. That, that's just unbelievable. And of course, these are all measures of discouragement, as you can imagine. And the point was, obviously, to tighten existing law and to extend its scope. And yeah, the ultimate aim was to increase self-censorship of artists, exhibition organizers and funding institutions, exactly the topic of the exhibition Forbidden Art 2006. So it's all reflected in uh, the exhibitions. And another change to the law, sorry for talking that much about the law, but I find it... Uh, as interesting as as crucial, another change 
to the law, which resulted from the proceedings against caution religion and forbidden in 2006 in 2013, had made the propaganda of non-traditional sexual relationships to minors, that's how it's called in, in the law, a punishable offense. And this for sure not only affects art, the media, film and theater, but um, potentially the entire LGBTQI community. And maybe you have read uh, that just a few weeks ago, um, this restriction to minors, so propaganda of non-traditional sexual relationships to minors, was removed from the law so that now the propaganda of non-traditional sexual relationships is criminal in general. And this makes it impossible for queer people to even live or exist in Russia. And moreover, what else do we have? We have quite, it's not a funny law, but nevertheless, it's strange. Uh, in April 2014, a law on the state language of the Russian Federation made it an offense to use swear words in the media, films, theater, art, and in everyday life. And if you've ever been to Russia, uh, <laughs> you know that people are swearing everywhere and all the time. It's going to be a difficult and, one to implement it. <laughs> or, yeah, or police, yeah, right? It is. But it, it was implemented um, right after its introduction in 2014 at Manifesta in St. Petersburg. So some works were banned and removed from the exhibition. And these new or altered laws increasingly compromise artistic practice, as we can imagine, through the threat of legal consequences. So that themes such as uh, politics, eroticism, and religion need to be handled really with great Care. And since the war in Ukraine, uh, again, laws have been added concerning misinformation about the military, not to mention the law against foreign agents, which, of course, affects many artists. And in general, it's a very sad topic. Yeah, and organizations. That's right. Um, I think it's important to note this uh, uh, you know, kind of flurry of, of laws that, that uh, were um, brought into being during this period because I, th I think at one point that they referred to Duma as the mad printer. It gave so many, you know, it issued so many different laws so quickly that uh, people could barely uh, keep up. But interestingly, all these laws had direct influence, right, on, on artistic production, uh, but also provoked artistic reaction at, at the same time. Um, and, and then this intersection between art and law becomes um, more and more frequent, doesn't it? Uh, now, now, when you talk about these these processes, it's it's from the two thousands. It's it's hard not to think about um, those cases from the Soviet era, right? And you mentioned in your book, um, you know, uh, cases starting with you know Sergei Prokofiev and Dmitry Shostakovich in the thirties, um, the famous uh, Sinyavsky and Daniel case, and then the trial of Joseph Brodsky in the sixties. Um, what are some of the connections that you make in your work between uh, Soviet and post-Soviet art trials? Oh, there's a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a lot of connecting lines. Um, so the proceedings against caution religion and forbidden art 2006 really continue a range of mechanisms and functions that began in the Soviet mock trials already in the 10th and 20th of the 20th century. 
and were consolidated in the Stalinist show trials of the 30s and then were reproduced in the literary trials of the 60s you just mentioned. For me, this is actually all one big interrelated development over yeah, a hun- yeah, 100 years. And uh, where to start and how to start. So, um, the post-Soviet art trials, for example, as I already mentioned a little, are characterized by a very unusual degree of theatricality. And by theatricality, I mean the way in which people literally play their roles. So a holding court is always kind of a play because everybody has his or her role, uh, the witnesses, the judges, and so on. But in in the cases we, we are talking about now, they read the testimonies. I already mentioned that briefly. And they, the witnesses are even casted to take part in this play, which in my view links back to a strongly theatrical tradition of early Soviet show trials. And this tradition was rehearsed in an actual theatrical framework in the mock trials. These were theater plays um, and was then transferred to a juridical context in the Moscow trials. And it still seems to be very effective today. And furthermore, the defendants in the post-Soviet art trials are judged more according to certain moral precepts and a particular, especially religious, worldview and less on the basis of a juridical offense applicable to their deeds. That's why I also call them moral trials sometimes. And in this, they resemble very much the Stalinist show trials and the post-Stalinist literary trials because it never was about uh, juridical offenses, but always about moral or ideological questions. This practice, again, was introduced by the mock trials and then by the lay courts before becoming established in criminal cases. And another connecting point is, oh, that's a very good one, uh, is the guilt of the defendants, which is, as I call it, performatively produced, not only in the post-Soviet art trials, but also in the show trials and literary trials. As in all these cases, I think I said that already, there is no material evidence. Evidence of the defendant's guilt exists only in the form of witness statements and confessions by the accused. But it is interesting that the prosecution in the post-Soviet art trials proceeds in the same way as in the Stalinist show trials, but the defendants <laughs> refuse to plead guilty because uh, it's the th- 2000s and not the 30s. They are not afraid to be executed right away anymore. But now nowadays they maybe should. But anyway, uh, what else? Mm, in the post-Soviet art trials from the 2000s, again, a convention of speech is established in the media and in court that is intended to discredit and socially exclude the defendants. That's a very important moment, the social exclusions. They were, for example, called 
accursed reptiles or vipers, traitors of the fatherland, and so on. It's a very uh, interesting collection of these accusations. And this stands firmly in the tradition of the Convention of Speech established by the Moscow trials and continued in the literary trials and was intended to express the condemnation of the defendants by the entire people. And when we talk only when we talk only about the contemporary art trials and Soviet literary trials, the ignorance of the works themselves is, I think, as astonishing as it is substantial because those who are outraged by the texts or the artworks or the exhibitions usually haven't read or seen them. I said this already, I think. There is this famous sentence from a letter to the Literatur Neue Gazette in 1958 by a reader who expressed his opinion about the awarding of the Nobel Prize for Literature to Boris Pasternak for his novel Dr. Zhivago. Um, he said, I have not read Pasternak, but I know that literature is better off without frogs. So <laughs> knowledge... <laughs> yeah, frogs. Knowledge conveyed by third parties is enough to form a judgment. And also both the post-Soviet art trials and the literary art trials of the 60s are very similar in their function of re-establishing a generally valid, very academic and religious concept of art through juridical means the literary trials against Bodsky, Orsinyavsky and Daniel, in my opinion, in the 60s, in the middle of the 60s, served to reconfirm a state-sanctioned concept of literature after a short phase of liberalization during the Khrushchev thaw and to withdraw recent concessions to freedom of artistic expressions. And the art trials were similarly intended, I believe, to revoke the formerly quite unknown artistic freedom of the 90s. They are also intended, in my view, to motivate artists, curators and writers to increase self-censorship by yeah, demonstrating the consequences of deviating from the norms. So you see, I'm sorry for talking about this so long, but um, I think it's very important to understand that these discussions and proceedings do not come out of nowhere, but that there is a long historic tradition which also can explain why um, people often do not stand up against these trials because they are very much used to this form of expelling, excluding people and uh, whole art movements from society. They rehearsed this for 100 years. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really interesting point. And um, if you yeah follow these trials closely as, as you did, you, you see these historical continuities on, on both sides. I mean, equally, um, the defendants tried to use these historical precedents to claim continuity between um, current regime and, and the Soviet regime and the uh, certain uh, violence and brutality um, of those regimes, uh, while the other side right uses this for its own own purposes. So, so absolutely, the history is, is a huge part of, of, of these trials. Um, 
Now, what, what I find quite uh, yeah interesting in your work is that you take a step back from Soviet and post-Soviet context, um, and you reflect on some of the international cases uh, in which artists and curators have been put on trial. But you already mentioned some of the the cases that were more in a, uh, I guess, uh, import sphere of things, right? I'm not noting the famous, for example, case of Konstantin um, uh, Brancusi and his. Um, uh, attempt to import one of his uh, famous sculptures to the U.S. and the whole debate whether this is artwork or is it this material that then needs to be, uh, yeah, taxed differently and so on. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm interesting if you can tell us. Uh, interested if you can tell us a little bit about th- that comparative aspect of your book. That's a very important aspect because I didn't want to write only about Russian cases without um, putting them in in the context and I didn't want to exotize them. Uh, That's why I included included international court cases and I included them um, to point out the particularities of the Russian trials or even to point out that they are not so different from the international trials. So I included cases from uh, yeah, the Brancouche case, uh, which is maybe a US-American case because he wanted to import his work to the US. I included cases from Germany, Switzerland, uh, but also from Poland, Japan and other countries. And mm, most of the prosecution and defense positions aren't limited to the art trials in Russia. When art is dealt with in court, apart from questions of copyright, the reason for this is mostly all over the world, the contravention of conservative moral standards, injury of religious or national feelings, or the distribution of pornography. We didn't talk about pornography, but anyway. Um, So the use of religious symbols contrary to religious convention uh, provokes charges internationally at the beginning of the 20th century, for example, also in the case of Georg Kosch in Germany or at the end of the 20th century in the case of the exhibition Sensation Young British Artists from the Saatchi Collection at the Brooklyn Museum in New York or also in the case of the Polish artist Dorota Niesnowska. There's a lot of cases. And when we are dealing with charges of inciting religious and national hatred and violating religious feelings, the Russian art trials of the 2000s take their place in a long series of international proceedings against visual arts. The strategies of prosecution and defense are very similar internationally, I can say. The emphasis on positive provocation through art and the appeal to freedom of artistic expression, for example, is a very typical defense strategy almost everywhere. And also the argument that it is the purpose of art to shock and to challenge the viewer by undermining preconceived opinions is very common. But what distinguishes the Russian cases, however, is the defense's attempt to marginalize the art and its intention in order, I think, to offer the prosecution as little attack surface as possible. This I only know from the Russian trials. In other countries, the defense insists much more strongly on artistic freedom. And the aim of the trials, either in Russia or other countries, is basically the elimination of the unpopular contemporary art from public space and from society. In countries, 
where this is interesting in countries where art is state funded this is often done by withdrawing funding for example in the us or in switzerland there are very famous cases but in the russian context in which there is almost no public funding for contemporary art it isn't possible to argue the squandering of taxpayers money <laughs> right Oh, difficult. They are squ- squandered elsewhere, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are. Yeah, they are all in Swiss banks, but that's another topic. <laughs> sure. Uh, <laughs> instead, the prosecution attempts to expel art from the public sphere and force it back into private niches by describing it as socially harmful, as being an enemy to the people, an internal enemy and what so on. I found it very interesting to find out that basically the arguments in a courtroom uh, when it comes to discuss contemporary art and how it offends society or society's law is basically the same everywhere. No, that, that's really yeah important aspect, I think, of your work. And it, it gives puts it in a little bit of a perspective, right? Because... Uh, um, we often see the Russian cases, you know, get quite a bit of uh, media internationally, uh, but it's not that common that you hear about a Swiss art trial, right? <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, it's a quite quite a um, important insight into into this topic. Yeah, um, that's but- why I included mm-hmm. also two Swiss cases by Thomas Hirschhorn and Harald Nagli, and these also show. Um, the state of a society and to which offenses a society reacts. No. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, in the concluding part of your work, you uh, reflect on two of uh, what are certainly most high-profile instances of prosecution of artists in contemporary Russia. Um, and this is the trial of the Pussy Riot Collective and then um, the trial of Pyotr Pavlensky. Um, how, what do, how do these cases differ from the trials associated with um Caution religion and forbidden art um, that you work that you focus on. Hmm. I think before I answer that question, I just wanted to point out that um, the German version of my book was published in 2014, so I finished it in 2013, and um, that's why the case of Pussy Riot is not figured as prominently in my book as it might have been if I had written the book just recently. Um, A lot of people asked me why I didn't include that case, but it was just a matter of time and of finishing a book and not writing it for decades. (laughs) Um, And I would would say that the trials of Pussy Riot and Piotr Pavlyansky are perhaps not so different from the trials of Caution Religion and Forbidden Art 2006, but rather they continue these proceedings. But of course, there are many differences that can also be mentioned. For example, the or the most important is that the trials against the two exhibitions take place primarily in the realm of art, art exhibitions, whereas the trials against the individual artists or groups, uh, Pussy Riot and Pavlensky, take place in the realm of political activism. And this has changed the charges, for example. So Pussy Riot's punk prayer or Pavlyansky's various actions were no longer about incitement of religious hatred, but about hooliganism, whereby, that's an important point, hooliganism can also include the incitement of hatred, 
either out of religious motives or out of hatred against a social group. So you have um, even two accusations in one. The actions of Pussy Riot and Pawlinski, especially in public spaces, were aimed directly against the government's policies. And this was not the case with the exhibitions, or much more indirectly. Um, in the case of Pussy Riot, it's also very interesting that the prosecution has repeatedly referred to the violation of church law, although the case was tried before a secular court. And significantly, the trial repeated and confirmed Pussy Riot's criticism in the punk prayer of the unholy alliance between church and state in Russia. I don't think this was intended, but it's nevertheless very significant. And another very important difference is that the accused artists were taken into pretrial detention, from which I think one can also see the impatience of the state with critical artists who were no longer just to be banished to their kitchens, but sent straight to prison. Um, we all know that Rush, uh, Pussy Riot spent two years in prison and Pawlensky's mental condition was examined several times in the hope of committing him to a psychiatric ward, as was done in the Soviet Union with dissidents. In other words, the typical Soviet blanket charges were gradually reintroduced with Pawlensky's cases until finally art became part of the national security strategies in 2014. Culture, according to the national security strategies, shall now even contribute to the preservation of uh, moral and ethical norms as an aspect of national security interests and to the protection of traditional Russian spiritual values from being weakened by the so-called expansion of external cultures. And since the Soviet term foreign agent, which I have already mentioned, has been reactivated for private individuals as well, critical art making is as good as impossible anyway. So Pavlensky is not in, in Russia anymore. Uh, Pussy Riot either, so all those artists whom one might call dissidents, although I find it difficult to apply this Soviet term to today's uh, political artists or activists, uh, yeah, are expelled, are no longer there and can no longer do any harm to mm. the state. Yeah, and, and of course this... this um... Um, state of, of exile, right, of artists is, is, is another thing that we recognize there. Um, I, I, yeah, I find it quite fascinating that you fi finalize kind of your study with, with these two cases. Like, I think they do kind of escalate this story. Um, and I think with the point with where we uh, look at Pavlensky's case, it's really is, uh, I think we are at the point where he's um, using art at the trial, right, as, as his medium. And he's really mastered kind of that interaction between the artist and the uh, uh, Russian legal system, and 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 becomes part of a part of an art practice. Um, yes, he has because he is trying mm -hmm. to 
state uh, mm. or he's trying to play with the same means as the state or the court is yeah, yeah. so he Absolutely. was for example inviting to his trial witnesses prostitutes yes. who <laughs> haven't seen his work but yep. uh, who testified uh, for him uh, that means against him mm. and uh, therefore showed everybody how the system works and how perverted the system is Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, he plays that kind of mirror, right? And um, and you note in your book that he pushes this further in terms of um, accusations, it, it stepping from vandalism not to kind of extremism, right? And and yeah, terrorism, um, yeah, even terrorism, terrorism. That's right. Even. That's right. right? Yeah. Terrorism and pushing that that line further and further. Um, so uh, it, it's a it's a really kind of uh, interesting interesting evolution of of um, this intersection between between art and, and law that you trace here yeah, um, but also Sandra, very sad. <laughs> yeah yeah oh yeah absolutely um I, I wanted to thank you for um speaking with us today and, and talking uh, about your book um and i'm interesting to know what comes after art trials so what are you working on at the moment <laughs> sometimes i think uh, this topic never ends <laughs> <laughs> and sure. it actually doesn't but it, it's very kind of you to to ask um, at the moment I'm working on something completely different but maybe it's not that different uh, anyway but it's definitely a much more historical topic I'm currently part of a research group funded by the Swiss National Foundation on Art and Disinformation in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union I'm so there's four of us, and I'm looking at Soviet caricatures and satire from the Thor, so from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, against Western abstract, bourgeois art, as it was called. So at caricatures from Russia, Ukraine, Georgia, Hungary, Belarus, the GDR, and so on. And I'm interested in how this form of propaganda against Western abstract, non-figurative art actually provided a great deal of information about this forbidden form of art. So it may be even called a parallel art history. And um, for me, a very important keyword is information through disinformation. So how people uh, came to know about this abstract art through the caricatures, which were used to teach them that they should hate this art. It's a very strange working mechanism. And I'm also interested in how one can retrace uh, an imperial understanding of art on the basis of the supremacy of the Russian satirical magazine Krokodil, Crocodile. And I'm planning a book with lots of visual material. And now it's, um, as you can imagine, difficult to go to Russian archives. And I have to work a bit around this. That's why I also included uh, Georgia, uh, and and Hungary and so on and for for all of us who are mm, specialized in the field of Eastern European art history or Russian art history, it's very difficult at the moment. Of, and we have to find our ways to 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 uh, unveil this imperialistic view also in art history. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's that's uh, yeah, sounds like uh, terrific projects, and uh, <laughs> I, I, I know so. they're quite quite challenging um, at, at the moment with respect to access to to archives and and uh, other sources. But uh, I uh, wish you best of luck, and I do hope that you will come back and talk to us about your projects in the future. Thank you again. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Ivor. It was a pleasure talking to you.